Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Marcus Weibel from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Today we'll be talking to Rolf Pfeiffer from the University of Zurich. Rolf Pfeiffer has pioneered a new approach to artificial intelligence called New AI, which emphasizes the role of embodiment and argues that thought is not independent of the body, but rather tightly constrained and at the same time enabled by it. He has also just published a popular science book entitled How the Body Shapes the Way We Think, together with Josh Bongard, who we just interviewed on Talking Robots a few weeks back. Welcome to Talking Robots, Rolf. Hi. Uh, last summer, you organized the AI Summit meeting uh, for the 50th anniversary of artificial intelligence. Uh, how has AI developed and changed in the last 50 years? Well, I think uh, we should make a distinction between uh, two uh, communities. I think one community actually hasn't changed very much, whereas the other one has changed dramatically. Initially, uh, people started from the assumption or the equation, let's say, cognition equals computation or something like that, cognition as computation. So that's the computational paradigm. And so um, in the beginning and up to the, well, maybe 1970s, 1980s, people in artificial intelligence were mainly trying to develop algorithms or computer programs for various typically cognitive or intellectual tasks. There was in terms of, in terms of, uh, areas that people were interested in, it was very much focused on things like, you know, that we think are high-level cognitive, like, uh, you know, solving abstract problems, uh, doing mathematical proofs, uh, language was a big topic, reasoning, logic, you know, things like that. And so, and that, of course, lends itself also very well to this kind of approach. Now, and and I think this way of um, proceeding and this way of working and doing research has also been very successful in terms of applications. So it's led to very interesting and very important applications. And if you look at something like Google, you will find many algorithms and programs that have, in principle, their origin in this way of viewing uh, artificial or, or of doing artificial intelligence, for example, al algorithms for pattern matching, for heuristic search, or for machine learning. Now that part of, but, but the people now working for Google, if you ask them, they wouldn't say they were doing artificial intelligence. They would, you know, they're just developing interesting uh, computer applications. And I would say that part of the community, there's still a part of the community in AI, traditional community, still very large in the United States, that is basically continuing that kind of computational or algorithmic research in artificial intelligence. Now there is, uh, and you could, you could say while this approach or this idea has led to very interesting applications, it has not considerably contributed to elucidating the mechanisms underlying intelligent behavior. So there has always been another part of the community which was more interested in the foundations of intelligent behavior. And those people 
have realized, have started realizing the limitations of this approach and, you know, realizing that intelligent behavior, especially in the real world, is not so much, cannot be modeled in purely computational terms. Those people were then, you know, getting interested in uh, neural networks. Neural networks was a big uh, relief at the time, you know, because people thought, ah, now, you know, it's really parallel, it's biological, and so people got more, while initially everybody was interested in psychology because of, you know, psychology of thinking, psychology of problem solving, and so on, later on people got more interested in, in biology and started working with biologists. They were attracted to the idea of neural networks, which then still didn't solve the problems that they had. And then uh, in the mid-'80s, this idea of embodiment came along, at least in artificial intelligence. It had been around in other areas uh, before, but I think for us relevant, it was mostly Rodney Brooks in the mid-'80s at MIT said, well, you know, we really, if you need, if you want to deal with the real world, you know, then you need a body to interact with the real world. And that, I think, was probably the biggest change, the biggest change in the history of artificial intelligence, much bigger than, you know, neural networks, for example. And then I think a whole new paradigm started, it was getting much more interdisciplinary. You know, people started to work with the neuroscientists, then, of course, because if, you, if you're interested in embodiment, then you build physical systems. You have to deal with electronics, not only computer programs. You have to deal with, with mechanical issues. Uh, you have to deal with behavioral issues. So there was people started closely cooperating uh, with biologists and with uh, neuroscientists. And so it's turned into a very interdisciplinary uh, field and also with the idea of embodiment, people started cooperating with, for example, researchers from uh, biomechanics and from material science. You know, which was unthinkable 50 years ago. Uh, so you've been one of the pioneers of this new approach to artificial life, which moves away from what you called the traditional or algorithmic research, and kind of abandons the idea that intelligence is something abstract that can evolve without a body. But instead, it rather stresses that it's not just our brains that influence and control our bodies, but there's also the inverse. It's our bodies that influence our brains. Could yeah. you tell us a bit more about this, this new approach to AI? For instance, how does morphology affect intelligence? Right. Okay. Uh, I think it affects intelligence in, in uh, very significant ways, in many ways. Now, imagine that you are... Uh, sitting at the table, you're grasping a cup that is sitting, let's say, maybe on your right side. You're grasping the cup, you know, you're drinking a zip of coffee from the cup. Now, what's actually happening? First of all, you have to grasp, you have to grasp the cup. Now, if, so basically, you have to open your hand, you, have, you close your hand. Now, if you close your hand, then... Uh, the fingers of your hand automatically come together. You don't need to control for that. That's in the morphology of the hand. But that's, of course, from an evolutionary perspective, that's exactly what you want. I mean, what, what has the hand evolved for? Well, for grasping things. If you want to grasp things, then the fingers have to come together, which they do without neural control. But there are other things that are happening at the same time. For example, the the uh, let's say the forebody, the limb, the, the arms, 
are such, or the hands are positioned on the arms and the arms are positioned on the body such that the most standard movement of the arms will bring the physical object that you're grasping into the range of the visual field. So in a sense, through the physical movement with the arm and, you know, that holds the cup, you are generating sensory stimulation in the visual field. But at the same time, you are generating sensory stimulation uh, on your uh, fingertips. And uh, it is known that, you know, there's a very high, we all know that there's a very high density of touch and temperature sensors on the fingertips. And when you're grasping something, you are stimulating uh, these sensors. And then, so you imagine, now you're stimulating the sensors on your fingertips. You bring the cup into the range of the visual field, or maybe you even bring it to your lips, which again generates sensory stimulation on your lips, and then you drink a zip of coffee, and with that you, you stimulate your, uh, your uh, um, taste organs in the mouth and possibly also your olfactory uh, sensors in the, uh, in the nose. And what also is the case is that all the sensory stimulation that you're generating in the different sensory channels is correlated. And so uh, basically learning, uh, let's say, the, for example, learning the concept of a cup, an important aspect or a central aspect of learning a concept of an object in the real world is learning or is multimodal association. So you associate from different sensory modalities. And then um, over time, you can learn to predict the expected values or values from one that you get from one sensory modality uh, that you can expect what you can expect in the other. For example, you can look at the cup and then you already have an idea of what it will feel like when you grasp it. And so uh, I guess going back to this question of what morphology has to do with intelligence is the kind of sensory stimulation that you're generating in the physical interaction in the environment with your body is, so to speak, the raw material that you're generating for the brain to form concepts and to learn distinctions in the real world, which is the basis of cognition. Okay, so I can see how this new approach can be true for intelligence that concerns simple movements, for instance. But what is the link between embodiment and our capacity for more abstract think thinking, like mathematical reasoning or planning ahead? Well, I, I would say, I mean, you say, well, simple movements. I mean, concept, I talked about concept formation. I showed how the physical interaction with the environment, you know, like this grasping and drinking from a cup is important for concept formation. I mean, that's more than just simple movements. But, I mean, your question is, of course, still justified. Um, the, um, for one thing, uh, the, uh, the, if, you look at, uh, if you look at development, if you look at intelligence or cognition from a developmental perspective, you will see, you will find that even, um, and, and if you look at the neural systems that are actually involved in these various activities, over time, over, let's say, ontogenetic development of the individual over months, uh, years, the, um, 
the brain centers, even language, if you use language, the brain centers that you're using, you may not be acting out everything in the real world, but the brain centers are very closely related when you use language and when you actually perform movements. So it seems that there's, they're, they're closely intertwined and not so different. So if you use words for movements, uh, um, some areas, well, I'm not a neuroscientist, but in premotor cortex, you know, which is partly responsible for planning uh, movements, will also be activated. So there seems to be a very close relation between language and sensory motor activities. There is also a book, uh, I think a very interesting book in this respect, that came out in 2000 by uh, George Lakoff and Rafael Nunez uh, called, uh, Met, uh, not, well, it's the Lakoff that wrote, you know, Lakoff-Johnson uh, Metaphors We Live By, uh, but this book is called uh, Where Mathematics Comes From. Now, in this book, they argue, they introduce the, the concept of conceptual metaphors. Now, conceptual metaphors, you know, warm, for example, you say something like warm, and then, uh, uh, or up, down, and he says these, or they argue that these metaphors are directly grounded in the way our physical bodies are actually built, you know, and our sensory systems. You know, you say something like warm, you know, warm regards or so, that directly relates to our sensory system. So in that sense, it's grounded in our embodiment. And then they develop this, this concept of these conceptual metaphors and build the more abstract concepts on top of these conceptual metaphors. And then they study, for example, gestures of uh, mathematicians as they're explaining very abstract mathematical concepts. And that helps them then. For example, one of these concepts is the, uh, the, uh, a limit, you know, the infinitesimal thing, you know, a limit, or going towards infinity or something like that. And then they look at these gestures and then they can directly relate them to, these, uh, to, these, uh, to the embodiment and to the conceptual metaphors. And so they argue that the way we actually construct, I mean, the big argument they make, which, of course, the mathematicians didn't like, is that they argue that mathematics is constructed Mathematical concepts are constructed, and they're constructed in a way which reflects our specific embodiment and could not have been constructed differently. Whereas the Platonists, you know, the traditional mathematicians, they argue that mathematical concepts and truths are discovered. And so I think they make a nice argument from the standpoint of philosophy for embodiment that even very abstract mathematical concepts ultimately are grounded in the specific ways in uh, in which our body is constructed. So uh, this makes perfect sense for uh, for trying to understand biological systems. Uh, but now it seems to me that much of much of trying to build the basics of understanding the basics of cognition or building artificial intelligence, much of this could still be achieved by a complex simulation. Where do the robots come in? So the question is, why don't we do simulation and forget about the robots? Exactly. Okay. Okay. Well, for one thing, I should say that uh, you can, of course, I mean, we do a lot of simulations. We do a lot of simulation work, uh, and I think it's a very important ingredient of any research in artificial intelligence and cognitive science. It depends on what kind of simulation you're actually doing. The kind of simulation that we're interested in and that we use 
is uh, what we call embodied agent simulations, which means that we try to simulate the physical, we try to simulate the physical body, we try to simulate physical interactions of the agent with a simulated physical environment. So we have sensors, you know, on the, on the robot, and then we simulate the stimulation as the sensors would be stimulated, you know, if this organism interacted with the environment. And we simulate, uh, we simulate the forces, you know, touch sensors, what have you, when they touch, the touch sensors are stimulated, and then, you know, they affect the activity of the neural networks. So these are called embodied agent simulations. So we do simulate the notion of embodiment. But then you can still say, well, okay, why is that not enough? Why do they still build, build the robots? And, uh, I mean, as uh, anybody who has built robots knows the simulation in the simulation, you know, it, it's never the same as, as the real world. And so uh, typically... By build, well, in some cases, in some cases, it's very difficult to build a simulation, um, you know, to get to get the dynamics right of the system, and it's actually easier to build a real robot. But I think in any case, even if if a simulation is is uh, easy to do or straightforward to do, let's say, then I think occasionally you should build a robot to see whether your concepts are still okay. There are additional reasons for talking about the real world if, you, if you're interested in evolution. But I think robots are necessary, yes. So if embodiment has such a profound impact on, on our intelligence, what does that mean for our hope to establish interspecies communication? Okay, I, I think that's, that's, that's a very good question. That's probably you know, really at the crux of the, of the whole thing. What, what it actually does imply, I mean, what I was explaining about the, cof, the cup, the coffee cup. Uh, if you want to build a, a concept of a coffee cup as we do as human beings, you need a particular body with a particular shape, with particular sensors, you know, sensory distributions, and they will provide raw material to the brain that the brain can then exploit to extract information structure from it. Uh, now, the, the raw material that's being presented is, of course, depends very much on the specific type of physiology, on the, you know, the, the characteristics of the sensory systems, the distribution of the sensory systems on the organisms, uh, on, the, on the organism, the, the kind of movements that the organism can perform, because depending on the movements, the sensory stimulation that the organism can actually produce will depend, uh, will, will constrain uh, will constrain the sensory stimulation or the, the, the patterns that the brain actually receives or the controller receives in a robot or the brain of a cat receives. And so because the, uh, the embodiment provides, in that sense, in the interaction with the environment, the raw material for any, any kind of processing or any kind of cognition to, to develop, the, the concepts that... Uh, creature, whatever artificial or natural, with a different kind of embodiment, will uh, be able to build up, will be very different. It could be, might well be, and we start from this assumption that the basic principles of forming these concepts, you know, namely forming, for example, cross-modal associations, 
may well be the same or very similar, but the concepts that are actually built and constructed, they will be very different. So we have to always have to take into account the other's perspective, which means we have to basically try to view the world through the embodied system of the other individual. And will we ever be able to do this, you think? Well, I think we can, we can uh, I think robots, robots will help us a lot in doing that because in robots, the nice thing we can do with robots is we can record all the sensory stimulation, we can maybe visualize the sensory stimulation and all of a sudden we see, oh, wow, this robot, well, has, you know, maybe one pressure sensors or let's say one, two, three, four pressure sensors on each finger Whereas we, even on the fingertips, have hundreds of pressure sensors and, and temperature sensors on each fingertip. And then we realize, ah, what the world might look like from the, from the other individual, which might be actually very, very different. Or even if we just, I had the experience with psychologists. You know, they had these very silly robots that only had IR sensors. All of a sudden, they realized that the world, from the perspective of the robot, basically consists of, you know, values of, of maybe eight IR, IR sensors, and that's it. You know, they don't see boxes, they don't see walls, they don't see people, they just see these eight values of the IR sensors. I think robots can be very helpful in trying to understand the perspective of the other. You just launched a new popular science book called How the Body Shapes the Way We Think, together with uh, Josh Bongard. And uh, could you give us a quick overview? Okay, so the idea is that, well, first of all, first of all, it, of course, deals, it's, it's all about embodiment. It's all about embodiment. Also, the title, How the Body Shapes the Way We Think, suggests that it is about uh, embodiment. It, it discusses some, uh, in, in more detail, the examples that I've given so far. And it also discusses the paradigm changes. And then uh, there are three fundamental goals to artificial intelligence, like understanding biological systems. And then biologists are happy when they understand the biological systems. But in artificial intelligence, we want to make abstractions. We want to have not, we want to understand not only biological systems, but we also want to build artificial systems, right? And so we want to have those principles that hold for both biological and artificial systems. And the way we did this was by uh, developing a set of design principles. Now, why design principles? On the one hand, of course, because we want to build things. We don't want to un only understand things, but also because of an evolutionary perspective. Evolution as a, as a designer, uh, maybe a blind one, but has designed wonderful things. So I, we thought that the, the metaphor of design principles is, uh, is a really uh, interesting one. So one of the major parts is design principles and design principles at the various timescales, the here and now, so the mechanisms. The second one would be the developmental from the lifetime of the organism, and the third set of principles would be evolutionary. And then in this uh, book, we have an additional set of principles because intelligence never occurs in isolation, just in individuals, but always in societies. Uh, and so we have a set of principles for collective intelligence. 
where we deal especially with the phenomena of emergence. And then uh, we apply these principles, not only we, we feel that these principles are much more general, much of much more general validity than just that they do not only hold for artificial intelligence or certain classes of biological systems, we apply them to, for example, management, to designing uh, business. We apply them to uh, uh, analyze a human memory. We uh, apply it to uh, analyzing uh, uh, ubiquitous, ubiquitous uh, computing, the field of ubiquitous uh, computing. And then we sort of suggest how this also changes the way we think about ourselves and the world around us. We've started by talking about the last 50 years of AI. And now I'd be interested to hear what you think about the, the future, maybe the next 20 or 50 years in AI. What will happen? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm actually not, not very good at speculating about the future. I would start by, you know, using this quote by Neil Spohr, who said, it's hard to predict, especially the future. And if we look... Also, maybe a note of caution, if we look at the history of AI, we see that uh, AI is probably the one scientific discipline with uh, uh, the most or the biggest number of false predictions. And I think it was, was, was it in the 60s, or I, I, I forget exactly when Herbert Simon, who is undoubtedly as a Nobel Prize uh, winner, uh, he is uh, definitely an extremely gifted and clever, or was uh, extremely gifted and clever individual, and he predicted in 1960 or 70 that within 25 years we will have machines that will be superior to humans in any kind of uh, you know activity. And of course, as we know, we're far from we're uh, far from that. Uh, and so I think predicting predicting is is a really difficult business. Um, now, where is AI going to go? I think uh, one of the we're we're just at the beginning of you know trying to understand some of the things. We're just at the beginning of trying to understand embodiment. I think this. So I think we are beginning to understand some things, but that doesn't mean that we're uh, we really have a deep understanding of it. Uh, there's so many issues that are still unresolved and that people sometimes gloss over. So I think we should be very careful in not glossing over uh, uh, many issues. Just to give you an example, some people say, well, you know, robots will have the intelligence of a two-and-a-half-year-old kid, you know. Uh, and then I think we have to be very careful what we mean, what we mean by that. I mean, if you look what a two-and-a-half-year-old can do, uh, if you look at the embodiment of a two-and-a-half-year-old, you know, at the richness of the sensory systems, at the richness of the neural systems, at the richness of the motor systems, then I think it is absolutely unrealistic to say anything like that. That doesn't imply that we cannot learn an enormous amount by building such systems. I think as a research goal, trying to build, for example, humanoid robots with high levels of intelligence as a research goal, this is excellent and will lead to many, many insights about the nature of intelligence in general. And let me just, you know, uh, go back to uh, to this example. I think 
what we need to do is really we need to be realistic about these about these issues. Let me give you one example why I'm skeptical when someone says this robot has the intelligence of a two and a half year old kid. If you take the example of the fingertips again, and at the number of sensors that you have on the fingertips, you know it's on the orders of hundreds or even thousand per square centimeter. If you look at the robots, you have one, two. Maybe the good ones, they have, have 10. Then the materials on the fingertips, they are deformable. They are passively deformable, not controlled by the brain, by the way. That's also embodiment. Passively controlled, the, def the deformation. So if you grasp a cup, which I did before, or I suggested before to grasp a cup, then you get passive deformation of the tissue on the fingertips. And that the, one of the effects is that you increase the area of contact with the cup. You also increase the area where you can gather sensory stimulation from the cup. And then uh, the fingertips, there is a bit of humidity on the fingertips which increases the adhesive forces uh, to the cup. And then, in addition, you can read out all these sensors on all the fingers in parallel simultaneously. Now, show me the technology that can actually do that. So I think, and this is just one out of very many examples of progress that we need to make in an area that people wouldn't think. I mean, we need to make progress in material science if we want to build truly intelligent systems. And this was just one example. So I think uh, it will be a while, a good while, before we actually have these systems that have the capacity for equal intelligence as humans. Also... We have to be aware of the fact that because these robots, let's say humanoid robots, even though there is a superficial resemblance to human beings, they have a completely different morphology. You know, morphology is not only superficial shape, but morphology is also, you know, materials, positioning of sensors, kinds of sensors, kinds of actuation, actuation systems, and so on and so forth. And those are extremely different in these robots. And so the raw material that these robots will deliver to their brains or their controllers will be very, very different from the raw materials that humans send or basically yeah, deliver to their brains to form the concept. And so these, these robots may well be able to form concepts or, let's say, make sense to talk about concepts in these robots that these robots operate with but they will be very, very different from the concepts of humans. You talked about the importance of progress in a whole range of fields. Now, I'd like to know if you look at the current state of technology in AI, where do you think such progress will be made? Well, I think I think we're uh, we're making progress in uh, in many different in many different areas. I think one area that we're really making progress in is, for example, locomotion, and there. I think the community now has has realized the importance of uh, uh, materials, of looking at materials and morphology. People start to work with artificial muscles. People start to look at elastic materials. People start to look at, and in the area of artificial muscles, for example, tunable springs. And then, of course, the cooperation with people from neuroscience and biomechanics is very important, and I think in that interdisciplinary field, there is enormous progress at, uh, 
at the moment. So now we're also able to incorporate insights from uh, from uh, neuroscience, from biomechanics, and material science simultaneously. And for a final question, maybe uh, in spite of, as Niels Bohr said, uh, the difficulties with predicting, especially the future. I'd like to ask you what you think. In what field will AI, artificial intelligence, have had the biggest impact in our lives in, say, 20 years? Um, okay, I think um, uh, it depends on how you define artificial intelligence and, and robotics. I'd like to think, I mean, people, I think people tend to think about robotics in a relatively, especially people from artificial intelligence think about robotics in a relatively narrow way. They think about humanoid robotics, partner robots, and things like that. As I said before, I think, you know, constructing a humanoid, intelligent humanoid, I find uh, an excellent goal as a research goal. Uh, and I'm sure along the way, you know, on the way to trying to achieve that goal, which we may never achieve or which we may achieve, I don't know, uh, many uh, fascinating things will come out. I tend to look at robotics or e even intelligent robotics more as, uh, you know, embedded systems or robotic devices. Now, I think our insights that we have from robotics and from embodiment, from embodied interaction with the real world, we can use for constructing robotic devices, which may be simpler, much simpler, but they have their sensory motor loops. I think it's, it's important to have the sensory motor loops. And there, uh, I think there is a huge industry out there uh, that uh, will, uh, will influence our lives to a very large, very large extent. We're going to be surrounded by devices like that and that we don't even realize anymore. I, I guess the, the vision of ubiquitous computing in that area has an overlap with the goals of artificial intelligence, at least the, the applied side of artificial intelligence. Then a second uh, important contribution, I actually see uh, in the area of uh, you know, sort of understanding, you know, interdisciplinary cooperation, understanding of biological system, of neural system, of intelligence in general, and that then leads to the, um, the conceptual impact, which I think is going to be considerable, and that is how it will change fundamentally how we view ourselves at the world around us, how we view social interactions, and of course, you know, I mean, just to give you an example so that this isn't, isn't so abstract, Uh, one one idea is that were this principle of you know parallel loosely coupled processes that I guess goes back to uh, Brooks in some sense that were basically a collection of you know reflexes that are loosely coordinated not so much in the brain but through the interaction with the environment is what many people you know don't like to think we'd like to think that we're in control of ourselves in control of our actions, but it seems, and there is a lot of recent literature in psychology, uh, that a lot of uh, empirical evidence that we seem to be a victim <laughs> to, uh, to uh, our reflexes that we don't have under control. Now there, and, and I think this is, this is going to be a fundamental change in how we see ourselves. It's, it's, it's also going to change how we do philosophy and 
we, I, I guess we have to get used to it. But there is this wonderful paper by uh, John Bark, who is a psychologist. So psychologists who are interested you know, in basically high-level cognition, right? And he has this wonderful paper, paper with the wonderful title, uh, The Unbearable Automaticity of Being, sort of arguing that a lot of you know, actually behavior, especially social behavior, interactive behavior, is really highly uh, automated and reflex-like, not under conscious control. So I think there will be a fundamental change to the way we view the world. And I hope that in our book, you know, we can make a contribution to uh, also uh, changing the way we see ourselves and the world around us. Thank you, Rolf, very, very much for joining us here on Talking Robot. It's been great having you. Okay, thank you very much for your interest. And, uh, it's been a pleasure. This concludes our Talking Robots interview with Rolf Pfeiffer from the University of Zurich. Have a look at our website for some background information on this show and for past and upcoming podcasts. I'm Marcus Weibel. Thanks for listening. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.